0: Hi, this is Dr. John Newfeld, Bible Teacher for Back to the Bible Canada. Before today's program, I'd like to share with you two important truths. One, the study of God's Word and effective Bible teaching are essential for spiritual growth and maturity. There is no replacing the Bible for understanding God and His plan and purpose for our lives. Second, the Bible teaching resources of Back to the Bible Canada, including this program, depends on the support of those who listen and share our heart for ministry. June is our fiscal year-end, and my hope is that you would join us in reaching our goal of $300,000. Reaching this goal will both sustain and allow Back to the Bible Canada to embrace new Bible teaching opportunities in the future in Canada and internationally. Would you join us? Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit BackToTheBible.org to make your donation today.
1: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. Newfeld is directing our attention to making a stand as the church. So join us as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13, as we continue our series, The Gospel Alternative to the Cultures of Men.
0: let's face it, we do live in confusing times. You know, less and less of our culture looks familiar anymore. I'm talking about what we consider to be true and lovely and worthy of praise. All of that has changed a great deal. From the days of the sexual revolution in the 1970s to the current transgender debate, Christians are wondering where to take a stand. Should we boycott a store when they allow people to choose whatever washroom they want? I mean, should we demand that our politicians take a stand? Should we lobby for educational reform? You see, I say this because I fear that many Christians are terrified. They see the culture going to places that look horrifying, and they wonder what they should do. I wonder if it gives any comfort to know that we're not the first generation of believers to find ourselves on the wrong side of the cultural divide. Some of the Apostle Paul's last words, just before he was beheaded in Rome, recorded in 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 to 13, reads, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people will go on from bad to worse. Now, some of you might say, well, that really feels that way, and that's what I think is going on today. Well, the problem is that when some of us hear these words, we want to buy a bunker, store up food that'll last 30 years, and live off the grid, and take our children out into the wilderness. But that's not where the Apostle Paul's thinking leaves off, because in the very next verse, in verse 14, he tells us how we should respond to a culture whose values are so different from our own. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. I mean, that's it. See, that's the answer. Keep calm. Don't panic. Learn the scripture. Make sure your anchor is secure. You're going to be fine. God is in control. So today, we're going to talk about the mission of the church. What is the church to do when it lives in a culture that celebrates things that the Bible condemns? How do we respond? Well, I'm reading 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. There Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meeting the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, it might seem surprising that a passage of Scripture which demands the excommunication of an immoral brother would have anything at all to do with mission. It almost seems like the opposite. Start excommunicating people and you'll probably close the door on mission. In fact, one of the reasons why churches hesitate over disciplining a willfully sinning member is because they believe it will have very adverse effects in the community. They think the community will say, if that's how you treat your people, well, we want nothing to do with you. So let's be clear. The very purpose of the life of God in the local church is not to throw people out. There have been churches that have thrown people out for the most ridiculous reasons in the past. You know, churches have excommunicated people for marrying someone of a different Christian denomination, or for having a television in their home, or or for wearing the wrong kinds of clothing. The list just goes on and on. Excommunication can become a means of gaining power over others, and when that happens, the excommunication is almost always related to, well, traditions, unbiblical teaching. Furthermore, when that happens, those in power are themselves untouchable, unaccountable for their own behavior. But Paul has been speaking about a very different thing. He's been speaking about unrepentant behavior for something that the Bible explicitly condemns. When we refuse to bow our knee to the demands that our King and Savior makes of our lives, this, Paul has argued, not only affects the person who lives this way, but it impacts the whole church as well. You know, sometimes in our attempt to get away from the ditch on the right-hand side of the road, we've fallen into the ditch on the left-hand side of the road. See, sometimes in our attempt to deliver ourselves from church tyranny in the past, we have fallen into the trap of not standing for anything at all. And in that, we have lost our mission. So let's get back to our text. Verse 9 begins with the words, I wrote to you in my letter. Now, the Bible reader might wonder what letter is Paul speaking about it would seem that sometime before the writing of 1 Corinthians, Paul had written to that church an earlier letter. Now, we don't have that letter, and whatever happened to it, well, we don't know. But it seems likely that the instructions that we find in 1 Corinthians repeat the matter that was written in an earlier letter, and that's fascinating. See, already the Corinthians had clear instructions as to what to do with sexual immorality when they found it in their church, and yet they had resisted and hesitated and disobeyed and even acted arrogantly. Unless we're too quick to condemn them, please be aware that we often have the same problem. See, now to the point. Paul says that he had already written to them not to associate with sexually immoral people, and he means that they should not keep close company with someone who is sexually immoral. It means not to be involved in someone else's life. Now, it is possible for any local church, in their attempt to be pure, to begin to disassociate themselves with people outside the church. Now, there's been a pattern to this kind of behavior in Christian history. The idea of a monastery can mean exactly that, although it doesn't have to. Sometimes Christian communities have moved into colonies in which anyone who belonged to the world was kept at arm's length. At times, separatistic clothing among Christians made us feel like we were distinct and didn't have to rub shoulders with the rest of the culture. Indeed, the fear of the world has often driven Christians. For one, they fear for their children— So let's not throw stones at them because all godly parents are concerned about the influence of a pagan culture onto their children. But here's the problem. It has often been the case that separatist Christians who have moved their entire population onto a colony have suffered from two things. Indeed, it happens as a two-step process. First, they stop being missional. They no longer reach people with the gospel. And second, they eventually forget the gospel themselves. Very quickly, such groups become works-oriented, insisting on the rules of the commune, and soon the rules become everything. In the end, they do lose their children, perhaps not from the commune, but from the gospel. Their kids live with them, but they're lost because the message of the cross and its implications are lost. It's always been the intent of our Savior that we, believers, live out our Christian lives in the immediate presence of the non-believing, even pagan environment of our culture. If we seek protection in anything but Christ and his word and careful discipleship of the next generation, what we're going to lose When Paul says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, he adds, not at all meaning the immoral people of this world. He's in fact acknowledging that in his view, Christians are supposed to associate with the immoral people of this world. That would mean that we're supposed to eat with them and invite them over and, and engage in friendships with them and be involved in their lives and in the lives of their families. He's assuming that this is what Christians are doing. And to the extent that we ignore that, we lose something significant about our mission. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew five thirteen to 15. He said, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. See, I find that fascinating. In the ancient world, salt was a preservative. And in a day when there was no refrigeration, salt was used to preserve meat to prevent it from decay evidently, Jesus felt that the presence of believers in the world had a positive effect. I remember years ago, sitting under Dr. Eddie Gibbs, he's a missiologist. Dr. Gibbs believed that he could demonstrate that whenever Bible-believing Christians went below 5% in any culture, human life would become cheap. In effect, that's our mission, to be so involved in the real lives of people, in the cultures in which people live, that our presence influences them and brings healing and light and good. See, in many ways, I find myself often as a pastor envying people who work and go to work in a secular environment. See, I know it's tough, but I also know it's where Christ wants us to be. But there comes a warning. We must in this not become like the culture. We must be
1: like the people of God. Here's the challenge that we need to respond to when Dr. Newfeld said, it has always been the intent of our Savior that we live out our Christian lives in the immediate presence of the non-believing, even pagan environment of our culture. So what does that really look like? Well, we'll hear more from Dr. Newfeld in just a moment. As the month winds down, we wanna make sure you take the opportunity to be part of our ministry match pledge that's been provided by a group of ministry friends. This group has committed a match pledge of $75,000 to the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada so that for every dollar or donation you make, they'll match it up to $75,000. If you've been considering offering a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, In Doubt, Laugh Again, or Truth In Life today, this would be an excellent time to double your impact. So to be clear, if you make a gift today of $5,500, $1,000, your gift will automatically be doubled up to $75,000. Would you help us take full advantage of this opportunity today? All you need to do is make your donation by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or give securely online at backtothebible.ca.
0: Here's the important truth of 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. God wants you involved in the lives of people who are sexually immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters, and so forth. It's the challenge of missions, of of radical engagement with the world, the challenge of salt and light. Indeed, those who are in the world desperately need what you have if you're a believer. How important it is to be there in the lives of people. You know, some time ago, while deciding which car to buy, I was engaged in a conversation with a car salesman. You know, he wore a turban, and of course, I instantly knew that he was a member of the Sikh religion. And in the course of our conversation, he asked me what I did for a living, and I said, well, I was a pastor and a Bible teacher. And without a moment's hesitation, here's what he said. One of my best friends is a Christian pastor. He's one of the most gracious men that I know. And I silently thank God for a faithful believer who had the aroma of Christ See, we're called to be in the world and interact with non-Christians, both the kind and dignified type, as clearly the Sikh man was, and as well, those who hold a morality that involves the things that Paul mentions. I mean, how else will they hear the gospel? And here I choose the word, but most carefully, but things change radically when it comes to someone who claims an affinity with Jesus. Look again at verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Have you ever noticed how backward we sometimes get it? How many times are we confused? We condemn sins in the world and we excuse sins among ourselves. In fact, God wants it the other way around. In fact, When you think about it, that was the ministry of Jesus, wasn't it? He had extraordinary compassion on prostitutes and tax collectors and gluttons and sinners, but he harshly judged the Pharisees, for they claimed an affinity with the God of Israel, and yet they were immoral. Now, I know that verse 11 sounds scary and harsh, but let me take you again to Matthew 18. Surely Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5 are based on the clear teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18. So let's start with verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So let's stop there, because almost no one does this. Let me explain what we actually do. If someone sins against us, we tell our friends, we tell the pastor, we tell everyone else who will listen to us in the coffee shop of what they did. And then when we have drummed up enough support, we get the courage to talk to that person ourselves. And by that time, the issue is so large that resolution becomes almost impossible. And what rather happens is open animosity. If we would just discipline ourselves to become obedient to Jesus, quit gossiping, we could resolve a great many problems before they become large ones. See, the same is true when someone's living in a sinful way. One person lovingly and carefully can make a difference. In a healthy church, the restoration of a sinning member is most often a quiet process. Now, let's move to Matthew 16:18. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This now makes the process a little more open and provides a sense of the seriousness of the matter. In fact, the process at this moment is still relatively a private one. The witnesses are there to be sure there are only two of them. And the reason for that is that they need to ascertain whether the person in question really is sinning. Now, I, for one, remember going to one of these and then gently taking the accusing brother aside, and I said to him, I actually find no basis for the charges that you're making. Now, secondly, if the charges are true, the witnesses provide a sense of the seriousness of the matter. So let me illustrate that. Let's assume a husband is cheating on his wife. He has an adulterous affair. The wife confronts him, and he tells her he's sorry but it was really no big deal. I mean, he didn't mean anything by it. After all, he loves only her. But she thinks it is a big deal, and his unwillingness to repent and seek the kind of help that he needs to ensure that this will never happen again is resisted. Suddenly, she shows up with two elders from the church, and in an instant, the line about this not being a big deal is shown for what it truly is. It's a lie. Now, Of course, the goal here must be restoration, and that includes deep remorse, repentance, a change of behavior, and a willingness to become accountable. Now, where that happens, there is no need for the church to know. Indeed, in the bad old days, you know, when an unwed pregnant girl needed to stand before an entire congregation to repent, well, that system was unbiblical from the outset. If she's repentant, what in the world was she doing standing in front of the entire church? This is completely contrary to the explicit commands of Jesus, and that sounds more like a power play rather than a real concern for purity and holiness. Love must always be our motivation, and restoration our goal in all aspects of church discipline. I think this captures the biblical mandate. All of us, at times, need to be restored. See, we need confrontation. But what do we do if someone persists in sin and simply refuses to listen? What happens when someone, as, as verse 11 puts it, is guilty of a sexual sin or greed or an idolater or a reviler? By the way, a reviler is someone who slanders other people, you know, tells stories about them that are not true. Let's say they're a drunkard or a swindler. In other words, they take someone else's money through fraud. What happens if we have a brother or a sister who does that and will not repent and just goes on doing what they have always done? And the answer is, the matter eventually becomes formal. In verse 7, Paul wrote, cleanse out the old leaven, which means remove that person from the fellowship. What's at stake here is the honor of God's name and the assurance of the purity of the church. So that's the intention. You don't discipline someone for what's not a sin. And secondly, always seek to restore. And thirdly, the naming of false brothers only happens in the context of blatant refusal to repent. Now, you have to ask, what then is the issue here of refusing even to eat with such a person? Now, maybe you've heard of situations where a church has told a mother or a father that they can no longer have a son or daughter home for supper. After all, they've been removed from the church and excommunicated so that from now on, they are to have no contact with them whatsoever. I mean, is that what the Bible tells us to do? Well, in order to answer that, you have to understand this verse in context. When the ancient church gathered, eating was a part of their fellowship. Indeed, eating is often a synonym for sharing the Lord's table. Now, what the passage does not say is that you can't go to a restaurant with that person or or have them into your home. If that were the point, how could we ever hope to reconcile that person to the Lord? No, no. The point is that we do not share the Lord's table with them. And we no longer invite them to our worship and our fellowship. and But why is that a part of our mission? Because we've been mandated not to lose our identity. That's the first challenge. But we have also been mandated to present to the world an attractive alternative, a community of safety, if you will, a community where all can be given an opportunity to be influenced towards holiness and to avoid the tragedy of sin. It's the challenge of being salt and light. You can't be salt and light until you deal with sin. You know, some time ago, a certain denomination decided to to make a stand encouraging their members never to attend Disneyland again. And the reason was, Disneyland was one of the first corporations to offer spousal benefits to same-sex marriages. Now, they argued that since God only recognizes marriage between a man and a woman, believers should offer courageous judgment on the wrongdoings of the world. See, is that what the Scripture tells us to do? Listen again to verses 12 and 13. "'For what have I to do with judging outsiders?' Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outsiders. Purge the evil person from among you. Do you see how we have tended to get it all wrong? How easy it was to throw rocks at our culture, to point out all the deficiencies there, and then to excuse ourselves. How easy it is to decry our nation for its wrongs and yet overlook the personal wrongs that are done in the church of Jesus Christ. If we are to make an impact in our culture, we need to offer to our culture an alternative to the wreckage of sin, not a mirror image of it.
1: John, thanks for a great and challenging message today. And you know, you told me a quote of Charles Spurgeon. I want to repeat it and maybe get you to explain it. He said, the church is like a ship and the world's philosophies are like the ocean. The ship needs to be in the ocean, but woe to that ship when the ocean is in the ship. I
0: love that quote, by the way. Thank you for mentioning that, Ben. I think that It is so easy for the church to think that if we only adapt, and I'm not talking about methodology, but when we allow the world's thinking to influence our theology, when what we teach one another is influenced by the culture that we live in and not the scripture, we're sinking the ship. We will not survive this. The church itself cannot survive if it adapts
1: the world's philosophies. That simple. It's a great word and a great challenge. Thanks, John. And come and join us again next time on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.